0: So Hebrews 7, the end of chapter 6, kind of introduces this guy named Melchizedek. And it's this mystery, who is Melchizedek? But that's not the point. That's just kind of a, all right, a subheading to get to the point. The point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is quit dabbling and commit. It's like this. If you are to go out here on this lawn and you said, I wanna try to do a front flip, what do you have to do to do a front flip? Can you dabble in it? Or do you need to commit? You gotta give 100%. To do a flip, it's 100% or nothing, right? What's 50% of a front flip? It's emergency room. It's called a land dive, and you're going to the hospital, and you're probably gonna be in a brace for a long time, right? It's the same thing, it's commit or else. So this Hebrews crew that they had a lot of tradition behind them, what was happening is they were trying to walk on a fence, They were dabbling in both, right? They're going back and forth. Jesus and Moses, grace and the law. Saturday, they were in the temple and Sunday, they were in church. So they were just going back and forth. So they had all these traditions that they were still trying to hold on to. And traditions are very difficult to give up. So the Bible just says it's Romans chapter 14, it's Colossians chapter 2. To the believer, every day is alike. Right? That's what it is. Every day is alike now. We've entered into the rest. There's no special certain day. But if I was to tell you, hey, from now on, we're doing church Tuesday at 8 p.m., how would you feel about that? Right? Because Sunday, it's Sunday. But the Bible really says you can worship on any day you want. But no, it's Sunday. So I get where these Hebrew believers would have a hard time letting go of some of these things. So the author has been patiently and methodically trying to convince them of better things. And Hebrews is not like another book. Other books, you can kind of like grab a little chunk and be like, that's really cool. Hebrews, you have to read from beginning to end because it's like this. It's like a Polaroid picture. Remember those when you're little? You would take them and then you have to put them under your armpit. Remember that? Like, why under your armpit? And they'd be like, hey, no, I don't wanna see it, man. Just show it to me. I'm not touching that thing. It just came from your armpit. And it would slowly develop or it's like, Sometimes you will download a picture and it's fuzzy and then it takes a little while for the pixels to get better resolution. It gets clearer and clearer. That's the book of Hebrews. It's slowly developing, methodically saying, Jesus is the point. He supersedes your traditions and the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and Moses, and he is better things. And so now... Melchizedek is this example, but the point of it is, hey, quit dabbling and commit to Jesus alone. You can't play both. It's Jesus or nothing. Okay, so let's jump in to this mystery. Verse one, chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. So introducing Melchizedek, he touched on him in chapter five. Now he's gonna hammer him. And he begins by telling us the history of this enigmatic guy. So it goes back to this battle. You guys like battles? Like growing up, I loved, like in history, when they would show the old reels from World War II, and every one of my friends would like tune out and go to sleep, I'd be like, this is so cool. One of the coolest battles happened June 27th, 1976. The Palestinian Liberation Organization hijacked a plane and they flew it to Idi Amin's Uganda, the Entebbe Air Force, and they let everybody go that was not Israeli, and they kept the Israelis as hostages. What's fascinating to me is this. The 12 Air France, they were French people, the 12 Air France um, crew said, we're not leaving anyone behind. And all 12 of them stayed as hostages, potentially losing their life, rather than leave. I thought, man, that's noble. Well, on the 27th, in Operation Thunderbolt, these Israeli commandos flew in at night, defeated Amin's army and the PLO, and rescued 102 out of 106 hostages. It's considered one of the greatest hostage situations that's gone successfully ever. Well, that was 1976. There's an even better one. Many, 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 many years before that. It's Abraham. And he has this nephew, Lot, who moves into a really bad part of town. It's called Sodom. And these kings come, this this confederacy of five kings just sweeps to this area and just starts to annihilate these little city-states. And they annihilate Sodom, take Lot, his two daughters, his wife, all their stuff, and just sweep away. Abraham gets news of this. Abraham grabs 318 people, not a very big army, rushes after these five kings, surprises them, defeats the five kings and their armies, rescues Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and takes everything from the five kings. Like, brilliant. On his way back, he runs into Melchizedek. He runs into this guy right here, this priest. And while he's there, Melchizedek gives him bread and wine. Fascinating. They enjoy bread, and wine. That's the story that's being talked about right here. So who is this guy? Who's Melchizedek? Well, he has this title, King of Salem, literally Jerusalem, but its translation is he's the King of peace. Does that fit Jesus? Let me read for you a text that you will know well. It's Isaiah nine, verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's gonna be a king. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. A son that's born is called Mighty God. Hmm. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hmm. So he is the king of peace and the king of righteousness. We looked at Sunday that it's Jesus's righteousness that matters, imputed to you and me. So his title, hmm, what's his job? He's a priest. He is the first priest ever mentioned in the Bible. And here's what's fascinating. The Old Testament outlawed someone being both a king and a priest separation of church and state. That's why Jesus would say, render unto Caesar's that which is Caesar and render unto God's that which is God. It's a consistent theme throughout. Don't let these two intertwine because it gets bad. Read about the Holy Roman Empire. When those two get combined, it gets ugly and bad. So the Old Testament said, none of that. You can't be both a king and a priest. You can't be it. One guy tries it. His name is King Uzziah. You can read his story in 2 Chronicles 25. And he decided he was gonna go into the temple and make offerings like a priest. And the priests are like, don't do this, don't do this. He goes, I'm doing it, I'm king. And he marches in there and he is struck with leprosy. Many years ago, when my kids were really small and we're just kind of talking through the Bible, I was telling them about that story, about the king going in and this happening to them. And then I told my girls, I said, when I was in India, and it had only been like a year before that, I met a leper. You ever met a leper? Yeah, it's interesting. So her name was Almahad, and she was probably about in her mid-60s, and she'd had leprosy for some time, and she was missing all of the fingers on her hands, and then her ears and her nose were starting to disintegrate as well. So I got invited over to meet her, which I was like, I don't really wanna meet her, but had no choice. And you get, she's the sweetest woman in the world. So I gave her some money. And when I gave her some money, she couldn't help herself. She just reached out and hugged me and kissed me. I'm like, ah, yeah, okay, <laughs> right? So I'm telling this story and Bella, she was only like eight. She hears the story, she goes, if I saw a leprosy, I would run. And my daughter, Carissa, who was 10, said, Bella, they're not called leprosies. They're called leprechauns. (laughs) Oh, kids, so awesome. God is so serious about this that when Uzziah tries it, he's turned into a leprechaun. It's like, uh uh-uh, you're not doing that. So you could not be both. But this guy, this Melchizedek, He's both. He's both a king and a priest. What is Jesus? He's both a king and a priest. Hmm. His genealogy, fascinating. In the Old Testament, for you to be a priest, you had to be able to trace your lineage back to this guy named Aaron, who's the brother of Moses. And if you could not trace your lineage back to Aaron, you couldn't be one of the priests. You could be a Levite. You could work in the Temple, couldn't be a priest. You had to trace back to Aaron. It's why when you come to the book of Ezra, after the Babylonian captivity, there's just chapter after chapter of these names that you cannot pronounce. The reason why there's all these names is because it was the same thing. It was the ability then to trace back and figure out, could I be a priest? Could I be a high priest? Could I move in that gifting? I had to be able to trace myself back, okay? Okay. This guy, it says he's without mother or father or genealogy. So it's like he just appears one day. Now, there's all these arguments about, well, maybe it's just saying that there was no record of it. I don't know. Hebrews just says no mother, no father, no genealogy. It's like he just appears. And then look at the duration. Without beginning, without end, and then he continues a priest forever. And if you look at continues in the Greek, it's present. So when this was written 200 years, 2,000 years ago, it was, he's a priest right now. Well, what in the world? What is this? So this mystery, who is Melchizedek? Origin of famous guy from the second century that loved the Bible and had some crazy ideas as well, said it was an angel. The Jews believed that Melchizedek was actually Shem, one of the three sons of Noah. There was a group called the Melchizedekians who said, no, it's the Holy Spirit. That's who the king of Salem was. There's all kinds of, Enoch maybe, there's all these ideas. Here's what I think. If it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and talks like a duck, what does that mean? Probably gonna win some football games. That's what it means, number one. <laughs> it probably means it is a duck. And I personally, I mean, I'm never gonna stand and say, oh, this is thus saith the Lord. I have no problem with Melchizedek being God the Son who at the incarnation becomes Jesus Christ. No problem with that because there are some things that are even harder to wrap your head around that are real definitive. 1 Corinthians 10, four says that the rock, that water came out of that followed the people throughout the wilderness wanderings, right? Who is that? Christ, right? You're like, well, that's a hard, okay. And I've said before that there's all these appearances the general that comes and wrestles with Joshua in Joshua chapter five, right? The, the one that comes and shows up and tells Samson's parents, his dad, hey, you're gonna have a son. And when he, the name is asked, I can't tell you, it's too wonderful. There's, there's, Hosea says that the, when Jacob wrestled that, that being at Jabbok, it was God. And Jewish scholars up until the second century AD talked about a second Yahweh. There was the first Yahweh who was transcendent and invisible, but then there was the tangible, visible Yahweh, and they changed that in the second century. Why'd they change it? Because it pointed too heavily to the divinity of Jesus Christ. So I have no problem with it. If someone's arguing, I'm okay. I think Melchizedek was God the son who becomes Jesus at the incarnation, personally. So now he begins to just say, listen, listen. Listen, all these comparisons, this is better. This is better. Why are you walking on the fence? Quit dabbling, commit, because this is better. So verses four through 10, blessed versus the blesser. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a 10th of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Blessed versus the blesser. So Abraham meets Melchizedek. They have this meal of bread and wine, Abraham is so amazed at Melchizedek that he gives him 10% of his net worth. Let me ask, who here would give a stranger they just meant 10% of what they own? Because if you would say, yes, I would love to meet you after this service. (laughs) Right? Something incredible happens here. And so the author of Hebrews says, Listen, the greater is always the blesser. Kings bless peasants. Priests bless sinners. Dads bless their son. Older people bless younger people. Wiser people bless their students. Grants pass blesses Ashland. It's always the greater (laughs) blessing the lesser. Right? Right? So you have Abraham, who is the father of the nations. You have Abraham, who God made the Abrahamic covenant with, Genesis 12, which I believe is the dominant covenant of the Old Testament that brings us to Jesus. That the Mosaic covenant is temporary, but the Abrahamic covenant is not. That Abraham, through your seed, I am gonna bless all the nations of earth, the most important covenant in the Old Testament. Abraham is Melchizedek is greater. Whoa. Whoa. That should take us back. Right? So, blessed versus blesser. This Melchizedek character is even greater than Abraham. Then next, the law versus life. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, For under it, the people received the law. What further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Verse 19 is huge. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Law versus life. I have a saying at my house, Right, If it works, don't fix it. If it works, don't fix it. So verse 11 says, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, why would we want to fix it? Probably because it wasn't. Verse 19, one of my favorites in the book of Hebrews, for the law made nothing perfect. Law versus life. Do you know people that meddle with stuff? What do you end up with? A garage full of broken stuff that ends up in a yard sale that you get rid of. So you have this this law thing that had been added to and added to and added to, if you know the history of the Jewish religion, the Mishnah, just more and more and more rules, just added to and attitude, added to and added to, not attitude, A bunch of stuff, had a bunch of additions had been made. If it worked, if it was successful, why would it need to be be replaced? Why would Psalm 110 say, hey, listen, there's hope. This system over here that, yeah, it's not working too well. Listen, there's hope. There's hope. There's another kind of priest coming, a different thing coming. There's hope. I remember at our house in 2006, all we had was dial-up. Anybody remember dial-up? All the words and the beep, (laughs) take you five minutes to send an email. And then we got a letter from Quest back then. It said, hey, we are upgrading your area to DSL. Would you like to join? I was like, yes, we will join, right? It was hope. Why? Because that system's broken. I want a new system. That's the argument right here. That's the argument. So if the law could do it. Why was there this underlying thing, hey, there's hope coming. Hey, there's something new coming. Verse 19 just says, the law made nothing perfect. The Hebrew author is just saying, the law did not work. I have that underlined, that little phrase. So what's the law? It's this Old Testament system, 613 do's and don'ts, that if you could do them correctly, you would make God happy. That's the simplest way to think about the law. 613 do's and don'ts, that if I did those right, hey, God would be happy. How'd it work for the people of Israel? Read Acts 15. There's a debate in the church. People are straddling the fence. Is it grace or is it law? So Peter stands up and just says, listen, brothers, You know the truth. Neither we nor our forefathers have ever been able to keep the law. (laughs) None of us could ever do this thing. No one could do all 613 of these do's and don'ts. It's impossible. So a couple of years ago, a guy named A.J. Jacobs tried to live biblically for one year. He wrote a book about it called Living Biblically for One Year. Yeah, he wrote an Uh, He did an interview, and in the interview, listen to what he says about it. When asked what was the main thing he learned from this experience, he said he had a rude awakening. He was surprised at how much he sinned on a daily basis. (laughs) He said no matter how hard he tried to be a good person and follow every rule in the Bible, even the Levitical laws, such as not wearing clothing of mixed fibers, he always messed up pretty regular. Jacobs was astounded how much he sinned. When asked what rules he broke the most, he said lying, gossiping and coveting. He even admitted he'd probably sinned during the interview. <laughs> so good. Right, that's it. The law makes nothing perfect. So why is law why does it fail? First of all, we try to find loopholes, don't we? When you do your IRS IRS, IRS taxes, don't you look for every loophole you can? Or you're like, no, I just trust the government. They'll take only what they need. Said no one, right? You're looking for loopholes. Everyone does. Like a bunch of years ago, my kids were small, and it seemed like every time I went to the bathroom, the toilet paper was out. So I laid down a law. It was If you don't replace the toilet paper when it's all out, you're busted, right? It must not have been a day later. I go in to use the restroom and there the toilet paper was not run out. There was the one glue square left. (laughs) Technically, they still kept the law, right? So then I'd have to make another law. All right, if it's under nine sheets, you have to replace it, right? You just get more and more and more. That's the law because there's always going to be loopholes. And the law, listen to me, the law never brings love. And what God ultimately wants is for you and me to love him with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our strength. That's what God's after. Law does not lead to love. Do you know that? Look at a prison. Lots of laws in prison, huh? Tons of them. Is any prisoner like, "Thank you for these laws? I realize that this is a dangerous spot. I realize that these are dangerous people. I realize that you have to have all these laws in order to keep us safe and I just appreciate that in fact, guard, I love you. Anyone mm right They hate it. How about when you get pulled over for speeding and you can hand that nice little yellow piece of paper that means you 're poorer. Are you like, thank you so much. You probably saved my life. I really have this problem speeding. I've been doing it all the time. Thank you. And officer, I love you. Said no one, right? Because laws don't bring love. They just don't. They fail. In fact, what the law does to most of us, it actually makes us want to do the opposite. So you need to see that sign on somebody's grass that says, keep off the grass. What do you want to do? Just take one step on it, just, all right. When it says wet paint, don't touch, what do you wanna do? Just touch it. Why? Because there is in us a little rebel. And the law has actually awakened it. Read Romans chapter seven. It just fails on all these things. So verse 19b says this. The law makes nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The law was the old way to try to draw near to God, but it failed over and over and over and over again. But there's a new hope. It's no longer dial-up. It's DSL. And the author now is gonna be able to start unpacking what this is, right? So if you try the law, and to approach God on the law, and you fail in keeping the law, how does that make you feel towards God? It's Genesis three, we run and hide from him. We're afraid of the gaze of God. So the law has this bad side to it, this dark side to it, that when we fail it, it actually drives us away from the source of love and the source of what we need. But there's a new hope and it's based, I love this, Verse 16, on an indestructible life. It's based on Jesus and his indestructible life. So no longer is it a roller coaster of did I do good or did I not do good? It's not based on me anymore. It's based on his indestructible life, and that's the hope that is almost all of chapter eight, this new covenant that now we enter into. It's brilliant. So it's law versus life. Which, what, what do you want? Why are you dabbling on this? Why are you on the fence? Commit to life, man. The law kills. It doesn't make anything perfect. Commit to life. And then man versus God. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In the Old Testament, you would take an oath to become a priest. How good are men's oaths? Yeah, not very good. Read about Aaron and his sons. They kind of blow it. Read about Eli and His sons, his sons begin to make the ladies that come there into prostitutes, like bad, bad stuff. So Psalm 138, verse two says, there's hope because there's coming a priest and the priest is not based on an oath of a man, it's based on the oath of God. How good are God's oaths? In Jeremiah 33, verse 20, God says this. If you see the sun come up, I don't know where the sun comes up. If you see the sun come up, I think it's over there. If you see the sun come up, you know I'm keeping my word. If I break my covenant with the sun and the moon, then you'll know I won't keep my covenant. So every morning that you see the sun come up, what it tells you is this, God keeps his word. So you got man's oath versus God's oath. Which one do you want? Man's oath is the law and priest and that system, and it's failed. Bring it with God's oath. And then verse 23 through 25, many verses one. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died and they had to be replaced. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, verse 25 is killer. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Priests had served for 20, 25 years. And then they'd be gone, you get another one. So it was a high turnover rate. So let's imagine you have a job right now and your boss loves you and you're on the inside, you're one of his guys, it's awesome, track is going good, but all of a sudden your boss quits or moves or gets fired and there's a new boss and he doesn't like you so much. You're not one of his guys. What happens to your job now? What's tenuous, and you're kind of worried about it, and it's always changing; it's a moving target. Well, that's the priests. Some of the priests were good. Some of the priests were bad. Some of the priests were ugly. So, just about what's the next priest going to be like? I don't know. Uh So it was always tenuous and always kind of worried, and ah. Uh. Now, it's solid. Now it's unchanging. Now it's unconditional. Why are you going back to that? Why would you go back to something that's so tenuous? So it's like this, David in Psalm fifty-one, eleven. he says something, it's after he's sinned with Bathsheba, he's blown it big time, he knows he's blown it big time. And he says in Psalm fifty-one, eleven, he says this, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why would David say that? Because the previous king before him, King Saul, in 1 Kings 16, verse 14, God took his spirit from him. It was conditional. So David says, oh, I saw it happen to the guy before me, and it could happen to me. This thing is tenuous. Oh no. Oh no. How about you and me? Is it tenuous with us? No, because it's not based on me, it's not based how good I am. It's based on the indestructible life of Jesus. And it says this this is what he does with his indestructible life. Verse 25, he saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I think a lot of us have this idea when it comes to sin that there's this courtroom up in heaven, right? And you've got God up there and you've got a prosecutor up there and you've got Jesus up there. And the prosecutor brings up his stuff and it's, it's okay, Heverly's on trial, just a big stack of sin, right? Thick. And it's like, oh no. And Jesus is like, okay, okay, dad, listen, calm down. I know Matt's blown it. I know he's a sinner. I know it's bad, but, but hey, kind of you owe me one. You know, I went to earth and, and went to the cross and all that kind of stuff. You kind of owe me, can you give him mercy this time? He's like, oh yeah, okay, fine this time. But eventually that's gonna wear out, isn't it? God's gonna be like, listen, he's a pastor, he's gotta figure it out, he's done. It's it's right, we have this kind of idea. That's not at all what happens. It's not that way at all. So, a better way to think about this, it's Jesus does not plead for, for mercy for you and me. Do you know that? He doesn't plead for mercy for you and me. This, if metaphorically, let's say there is a courtroom, it would be like this: the prosecutor brings up his stack of files against Matt Heverly. And the Father, who is a just God, who requires justice, sin must be paid for, has to be paid for, right? So stack of stuff, bad, all that. Jesus doesn't plead for mercy. You know what Jesus pleads for? Justice. And Jesus says this, that stack, I paid for that on the cross. Every single one of those have been paid for. And so, Father, it would be unjust for you to be paid twice for the same sin. And the case is dismissed. Paid in full, it's stamped. That's what happens. That's what he ever lives to make intercession for us. That every one of your sins was in the future when Jesus died on the cross. And they were all paid in full. Justice has been served. So his intercession for us is secure. It's done. And so his final point is this. For he was indeed fitting, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect for ever. Temporary versus permanent. So Jesus on the cross says, it is begun. It is 75%. Now, what does he say? it is finished, it's finished, it's done, you cannot improve on Jesus, so Hebrews, why are you walking the fence, you can't improve on what he's done, he's the unstained one, he's the separate one, he's holy, you know what holy means, it's super simple, whole, right? there's, there's not, there's no part of him that's been corrupted, he's whole, every one of us is a fraction, Right? That's why we had these, like, we had these sayings, (laughs) like, she's my better half. Right? uh, My mind's at half mast. I'm half baked. What's that all saying? You're a fraction. We're all fractions. Only Jesus is holy, and he's the one that we come to. He's the one that we need. Right? And there's all this bad theology about Jesus, like, like, I call it bumper sticker theology. Like Jesus is coming back and boy, is he ticked. Or Jesus is coming back and and you better act busy. Like there's all this bad theology about Jesus. Hebrews is trying to correct all that and say, wrong, wrong. He's better. He's the one that makes intercession for you. He's the one that allows you in. It's like this, this is what I know about my wife. My wife is always for me. I don't have to second guess her her motives or wonder why she's doing stuff. I, I know she wants me to succeed. He's always for me. Hebrews is trying to say the same thing. Don't you know, Jesus, he's always for you. He wants the best for you. He is interceding for you. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to do life in a way that is brilliant. And so now you can come boldly before the throne of grace and obtain help in your time of need because Jesus is better. So Father, I pray for any of us who might be walking the fence, uncertain, not committing, I pray that Hebrews seven would be declaring to them that Jesus is better, better than their own commitments, better than their own rules, better than their own little religions, Jesus is better. And I pray that we as a congregation would have a good theology about you, that you ever live to make intercession for us, that right now you are praying for me, for us, that we'd be successful, just like you did for Peter. You're praying for us. You want us to succeed. So I pray that we, if we're walking the fence, if we're lukewarm today, I pray that Hebrews 7 would say to us clearly, commit, commit, you'll never regret it. So may we be committed to the son. And I pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.